It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Isabel Hilton, Contributing Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Elizabeth Green, an analyst based in Taiwan, to discuss a feature she wrote for Prospect about how China is preparing for battle in Taiwan and what the future of the archipelago means for our geopolitics. But first, we, we should perhaps understand a little bit about Taiwan. It is a little complicated. So it, it's got a population which is a mix of indigenous people and Han Chinese who've migrated from the mainland. And it's an archipelago, 167 islands, of which the closest is just a few miles from the Chinese coast. Taiwan was a Japanese colony from the late 19th century to 1945, when it was handed to China after Japan's defeat in World War II. The government of China then was the Nationalist Party, the Guomindang, otherwise known as the KMT, and they took over the island. There was a rebellion against their arrival, and that was very brutally put down. And then the Chinese Civil War began on the mainland as the communists challenged the nationalists for control, and in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party won, and the Guomindang retreated to Taiwan, where they maintained that they were still the rightful government of all China. They were supported by the United States until Henry Kissinger's visit to China, when support for Taiwan was traded for relations with Beijing. Taiwan, by then, was a thriving democracy, and the United States did pledge to ensure that the island always had the means to defend itself against an attempt to force it to become politically part of the mainland. And that's where we are. 23 million people in Taiwan, 1.3 billion in China, and Beijing, until relatively recently, continued to insist there was only one China, but didn't seem to be in too much of a hurry to prove the point. That, though, seems to be changing. We'll hear more about what that denotes from our guest this week, Elizabeth Green, who has written an excellent piece in the current edition of Prospect and joins me now from Taiwan. Elizabeth, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us. There's a lot going on in the world at the moment, and Taiwan doesn't always get a lot of attention. Um, but there is an important election coming up in January. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the first woman president, is stepping down after eight years. Tell us a bit about her, and importantly, tell us a bit about what she represents politically. Firstly, thank you for inviting me. It's a, a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Tsai Ing-wen has been leading the Democratic Progressive Party uh, since 2016. Um, she's just coming to the end of her second administration. 
she has a very good reputation internationally uh, for being cool-headed and determined in maintaining the sovereignty of Taiwan whilst dealing with increasing assertiveness from the People's Republic of China. Um, so she's introduced a number of uh, socially progressive policies. Um, Taiwan has become the first country in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage. Um, and her position about uh, Taiwan's place in the world is that it should maintain the status quo as it is now, which is um, de facto independence from mainland China. You talk about de facto independence, but, but there is a bit of a taboo against the word independence in this discussion, is there not? I mean, the United States is very concerned that Taiwan not declare independence in case it trigger a, a, an obvious violent reaction in Beijing. But Tsai Ing-wen and the DPP are indigenous Taiwanese parties. Their whole raison d'etre is to preserve, as it were, Taiwan. How do they walk that line? As you mentioned, the issue of independence is very contentious and it's a very difficult balancing act for the DPP to maintain. Essentially, the DPP began as a pro-independence party and they've gradually had to shift their position throughout the years uh, to make sure that they do not make any moves towards formal independence because that would be crossing the CCP's red line and it would be potentially destabilizing for the region. So the current stance of the DPP government is that Taiwan is already an independent and sovereign state, so there is no need to declare independence. And this has been Taiwan's policy since the DPP gained power in 2016. There are a lot of ambiguities in this situation, not least the strategic ambiguity that the United States maintains about what it would actually do were Beijing to launch an invasion against Taiwan. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the US is currently operating under a policy of strategic ambiguity. So that means uh, America deliberately maintains a level of vagueness about how it would respond to a potential conflict between China and Taiwan. And this ambiguity really serves two purposes. Firstly, it deters China from using force against Taiwan. And secondly, it discourages Taiwanese leaders from formally declaring independence, which might provoke a military response from China. So it's really to secure regional stability. And why does that matter so much to the United States? The US has very strong interests in the Indo-Pacific. Taiwan is located at a key strategic node on the first island chain. If it were to be compromised, then the US might lose its hold on the second island chain. So that's uh, that's one of the first regions. It's, it's very strategically important to America keeping its interests in the Indo-Pacific. Secondly, Taiwan is immensely important for global trade. I think it's 88% of the world's largest ships uh, pass through the Taiwanese Strait. So if there were any 
any potential disruption this would have global ramifications. So if we look at the larger map of the region, we, we've got essentially China trying to assert its control over its near abroad, its maritime near abroad, including Taiwan, declaring the Taiwan Straits an internal waterway, which, <laughs> which they would argue gives them the right to control shipping, which, as you say, is hugely important for global trade. And on top of that, we have the world's most advanced computer chips being made in Taiwan by the famous TMC. So Taiwan, although it seems far away to many people, is immensely strategic and immensely important to the world in ways that people perhaps don't always appreciate. So let's look at what the likely fate is. Beijing has indicated that it, that it would prefer a peaceful unification, but it has never ruled out the use of force. And in the last few years, we've, we've heard a lot of warnings, including from Washington, that China is preparing for war in serious ways. Now, it's not an easy proposition to uh, launch an amphibious assault on Taiwan for lots of reasons. What's your assessment of the capacity of the Chinese military at this point to do that successfully? And what would it imply? There's a lot of debate about this in military circles of uh, the People's Liberation Army to launch an amphibious invasion against Taiwan. There are several senior US figures, the CIA director, William Burns, and former commander of the US Indo-Pacific Command, uh, Philip Davidson, um, have suggested that the PLA will be ready by 2027, and that's the uh, centenary of the founding of the PLA. So there's actually a concept known as the Davidson window, which was argued by Philip Davidson, that the PLA is going to an attempt to launch an invasion before before the centenary. And these centenaries have big symbolic importance in China, don't they? And Xi Jinping in particular has talked about the centenary of the founding of the People's Republic, the centenary of the founding of the party, and now we have the PLA centenary, and a sense that some big project has to celebrate these, which could perhaps be Taiwan. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of concern about this, understandably, um, and rightfully so. There are many signs that uh, that Xi Jinping is overseeing this modernization specifically in order to be able to to launch an amphibious invasion. I personally stand on the side that it's not likely for the foreseeable future. And that's because the Chinese economy is not in the best state at the moment. And to launch an invasion would be immensely costly and could incur severe economic sanctions. So I, I think that would actually be counterproductive. The Chinese Communist Party's main goal is to re retain the stability of the regime. And if there were enormous economic consequences from an invasion, that would incur uh, destability domestically. It's certainly a, an extremely high-risk venture, and you mentioned in your in your article that it it could be the beginning of World War Three. I'm guessing because if you were a Chinese military planner and you were about to invade Taiwan, you would have to take out the American assets in the region, and that would include Okinawa, for example, or South Korea or the Philippines. So a wider war could happen very quickly. Uh, with really quite devastating effects on the global economy, but also on China. And and I guess we don't really know what the risk appetite is in China for a, an adventure like that. 
But I found very interesting in your piece the alternatives, which are not so much discussed. You know, the grey zone tactics, the, the, pre the preparation of the battlefield, as I think you put it. Just, just tell us about grey zone tactics and, and what they are and why they matter and are they working? Grey zone warfare is a strategy that involves using a range of covert and non-traditional tactics to achieve national objectives without triggering armed conflict. Um, so that typically includes cyber attacks, disinformation, economic pressure, political manipulation, a range of different activities that fall in a spectrum between peace, uh, cooperation on one side, and war, or armed conflict on the other. Um, so the grey zone is everything that falls in between, and these actions are deliberately designed to uh, remain below the threshold of open warfare, and that makes these actions difficult to attribute to particular actors, and it complicates states' ability to respond. Now, you're living in Taiwan. Um, what do you observe of grey zone tactics now? We're not waiting for a military assault, you know, China is putting pressure on Taiwan. What does that look and feel like? It's an interesting question. I, I think because these tactics have been going on for so long, it's not a topic of conversation that you hear every day amongst Taiwanese people. So they are ongoing. They occur all the time. If we look at one of the tactics that China uses uh, constantly against Taiwan, this would be exerting military pressure on the island. We've really seen an escalation in uh, China's military posturing in the Taiwan Strait against Taiwan since around 2022, and that includes frequent military drills and incursions into Taiwan's air defence identification zone. This also includes incursions across the median line in the Taiwan Strait. Um, so what this means is that the Taiwanese military is constantly under pressure uh, to respond as if it is a real invasion, and that aims to instil a perpetual sense of crisis, but also to degrade military equipment. So that's one of the tactics that's used um, another would be the constant injection of disinformation into Taiwanese media. So agents from the People's Republic of China are constantly attempting to spread narratives uh, within Taiwanese media that align with its own interests. So these might be discrediting the Democratic Progressive Party. They might be uh, casting doubts upon America's ability to militarily defend Taiwan in the event of an invasion, or they just might be boosting the visibility of Beijing's preferred presidential candidates. How can you how can you tell when when a piece of disinformation pops up on Taiwanese social media or, or, or formal media? How can you tell that that is disinformation and that it originates in China? I mean, we do see rather similar things happening. Uh, around in in Western liberal democracies in in Europe in in the United States, a lot of it's attributed to Russian activity. But in Taiwan, how can you tell that it's not just a vibrant democracy having an argument with itself? That's a very good question. So I would say there are, are lots of divisions in Taiwanese society. Anyway, um, it's a, a free, very free and open media environment, and 
the political system here is extremely competitive. So we see the main parties launching these campaigns against each other to discredit each other. That's very common in Taiwanese media. A characteristic of grey zone warfare is that it's it's very difficult to attribute the actions to a particular actor. It, it makes it very difficult to find out where this disinformation actually comes from. Taiwan has a very robust civil society and has developed many organisations and fact-checking organisations that monitor disinformation and work on educating the Taiwanese populace about the threats it presents. I would say uh, since 2018, China's strategies have evolved quite significantly with the use of artificial intelligence, so it's become increasingly difficult to track disinformation back to China. However, it's fairly easy when you look at the patterns of narratives that are being presented in, in Taiwan's media. And there are lots of organizations that work on doing this. After the break, we'll talk more about the future of Taiwan. But first, I'd like to tell you about a new offer. If you take out an annual digital subscription to Prospect, you'll enjoy one month's free digital access to all of the magazine's best long reads, its commentary and cultural criticism. Sign up now at prospectmagazine.co.uk one month free. Media Confidential is a brand new weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines. When the media goes dark, democracy is at risk. Monitoring those people that monitor us is vital. Expect revealing, high-profile interviews, in-depth analyses. That's me, Alan Rusbridger. And me, Lionel Barber. Strive to discover the truth behind the clickbait. So follow, like and subscribe to Media Confidential brought to you by Prospect Magazine. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> You do say that, that in your piece that Taiwan suffers 20 million cyber attacks a day, which is an extraordinary number. 
what are those? What do they consist of? What is a cyber attack? How do you how do you get to that number? I would define it broadly as an attempt to uh, disable, uh, steal, or expose information through uh, unauthorized access to to computer systems, to electronic systems, and these are often targeted at Taiwan civilian infrastructure. The People's Liberation Army has undergone a massive modernization and a structural overhaul since around 2015, where um, there's been a huge amount of emphasis placed on gaining informational superiority. So there really will be a concerted effort to uh, take out mobile phones on the island in the event of an invasion and to take out command systems so that will frustrate the Taiwanese military's ability to respond effectively. You, you make the point very clearly that although we're looking at things which affect the civilian population, it is, it is, these are military tactics and formally in, in the People's Liberation Army um, doctrine. And you talk about three forms of warfare, uh, Sanjan, which is uh, public opinion warfare, psychological warfare and legal warfare, and using these as military tactics, which I guess, you know, again, contributes to this grey zone, constant pressure on Taiwan across multiple um, domains. But we haven't talked um, yet about the maritime domain. And, and one could say that one of China's most successful grey zone operations in recent years was the militarization of the South China Sea, again, done just below the threshold that would trigger uh, a conflict, but with lots of small conflicts between heavily armoured Coast Guard vessels or Chinese fishing vessels and fishing vessels of, of other claimant nations. And we see this, I think, also in the waters around Taiwan, where a number of ambiguous vessels and a number of straightforward fishing vessels are staging incursions into territorial waters. Would you regard all that as part of, of the same pressure and part of the grey zone warfare? Absolutely. So, um, as you mentioned, uh, China has been deploying civilian fishing militia in disputed waters um, to assert their territorial claims. These civilian vessels maintain a, a constant presence and it means it's very difficult for states to know how to respond. They're civilian, so it's not immediately obvious that they have been authorised by their government to be in these waters. So in the South China Sea, Spratly Islands, China's government pays commercial trawlers uh, more than they can just make by fishing simply to drop their anchors uh, for a minimum of 280 days every year. Um, and this supports China's claim to disputed waters. Again, this is a, a key strategy in grey zone campaigns um, because it's, it's very difficult for governments to organize a response effectively, but it's also part of a larger uh, civil military fusion uh, strategy that China employs, which is blending these civilian and military sectors together. How do you think China envisages the the outcome of these tactics? It, you know, you, you, you paint a picture of, of an island, the principal island, 
under enormous pressure from from the air, from the sea, from the from cyberspace, from you know rumors and and when and it's easy to forget also that that you know the Taiwanese economy is closely tied in with the Chinese economy and many Taiwanese live and work in in mainland China. Lots of possible pressure points. What what are they offering? This gives the impression of a very big power trying to bully a much smaller power. It's not a it's not the art of seduction, I would say. Well, how do you think they Beijing envisages this turning out? It's a very interesting question. So it's it's not just about bullying. Um China also offers economically preferential policies to try and persuade uh, young Taiwanese talents uh, to go and establish businesses in China. It offers scholarships at prestigious Chinese universities um, for Taiwanese students. Um, there are lots of ways that it attempts to persuade a Taiwanese populace that integration with China would really be in Taiwan's best interests. Um, so it isn't purely bullying or just intimidation. The long-term strategic goals, I think China is aware that being too threatening actually has a counterproductive effect in Taiwan. So if we look at the 2019 uh, Hong Kong protests, the effect in Taiwan was to really boost the popularity of parties that are traditionally more associated with Taiwanese independence. So Taiwan won by a landslide after the 2019 Hong Kong protests because the Taiwanese had viewed the, the very brutal way in which mainland China suppressed those protests and provided an idea of what rule under mainland China would look like. So I think they are aware that pushing too hard will have the opposite effect as intended, but it's difficult to know where they see these pressures going. It's very important to them that the, the prospect of peaceful reunification with Taiwan remains a possibility, um, but at the same time we've seen the Taiwanese electorate really grow much more wary of mainland China in, in the last few years and increasingly identify as Taiwanese rather than Chinese. If that is the mood in, in Taiwan, then you might expect uh, Tsai Ing-wen's uh, hopeful successor, William Lai Ching-de, the DPP candidate, to do better than the Kuomintang, the party that Beijing favours. Is is that what you anticipate? Is that what the polls are telling us? Yeah, so uh, currently nationwide, nationwide polls show William Lai as uh, leading the presidential race. Um, the last time I checked, I think a few days ago, was he was at 33, roughly 33%. He has maintained the steady lead since spring. Currently, Ho Yo Yi, the KMT's candidate, is around 29%. Um, Ko Wenger's ratings are declining, and he's currently trailing behind, I think, around 22% right now. Um, so it's looking likely that the DPP will win the presidential election. However, we can't really predict anything in Taiwanese politics because anything can change at the last minute. It's a very dynamic political environment. If, however, that were to be the result, that would 
displeased Beijing quite a lot, the party that it most dislikes being voted in again. Would you expect uh, a reaction from Beijing beyond rhetoric or what do you think Beijing would do? Uh, yeah, I think there's going to be a very bellicose rhetoric. Beijing's leaders have made it abundantly clear that they very much dislike and distrust William Lai. Um, they are convinced that he's seeking to make Taiwan into an independent, a formerly independent country. So I assume that they will signal their displeasure uh, vocally, very vocally. But I also think it's likely that if Lai were to win, that the People's Liberation Army would launch invasive military activities around the island. There is a recent history of Beijing doing just this to to signal their displeasure to a Taiwanese populace. Um, in August 2022, we saw Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan and then the PLA launched a 10-day military exercises around the Taiwanese Strait and launched ballistic missiles into Taiwanese waters. So I think it would be likely that there will be a military display of Beijing's displeasure. So whatever the outcome, we're looking at a continuing tension and continuing activity in this rather critical region. Elizabeth, thank you very much. Thank you for your very insightful article and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us, Elizabeth. And for listeners at home, grab a copy of our latest issue of Prospect magazine, which includes Samuel Moyne on America's Unraveling, Sam Friedman on 13 years of Tory failure, Rowan Moore on whether Harold Macmillan could solve today's housing crisis, and Sheila Hancock and why she's agitating for revolution. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.